I want us to think about the cross tonight and, and, and what it means to you personally. To go back some 2,000 years ago to the place of the skull, Golgotha, Calvary. Jesus has been betrayed and beaten and has carried this cross 650 yards on his back. And you know, we, we look at that scene and we, we, we hear the, the crowd that, 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 that a week earlier was, was crying out, Hosanna in the highest, and, and laying palm branches down. And a week later, they're crying out, crucify him. And we say, I would never do that. I would never be that fickle. But it wasn't the, the fickle crowd that put Christ on the cross. Those Pharisees who, who had prayed for the Messiah for, for all these years, for centuries, they'd prayed that the Messiah would come. He is there, and now, out of jealousy and envy, they sell him to the Roman government. They, they sell his very life because, because they want to have the, the, the fame and the position and the titles. And yet it wasn't the, the Pharisees that put Christ on the cross. The Roman soldiers were experts in crucifixion. They knew how to torture someone to the last drop of blood, the last ounce of life, and they did that to Jesus. And they, they, they knew how to, how, how to beat and whip so it would come just to the point of death and, and then stop. And, and, and the crucifixion was, was just a, a horrible, agonizing way to die where, where every breath was a, a major accomplishment as they has to push himself up on the, the spikes in his feet and, and the nails in his hands to catch a breath and come back down and, 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 and to live for hours in, in partial asphyxiation until no more can he lift himself up and, 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 and the lungs collapse. And, and just a horrible way to die. But, but it was not the Romans who put Christ on the cross. You know who put Christ on the cross? Steve Canfield did, Dan did, Byron did, you did. You, it was us. Our sin put Christ on the cross. And we sit back there and we say, oh, those horrible people, what they did to Jesus. No, it was my sin. It was your sin. And we don't, we don't stand in awe of the cross because we don't think very seriously about our own sin. We see everyone else, it's so bad, and, and we feel pretty good about ourselves. I want you to go back some 2,000 years and remember tonight not just what Jesus did at the cross, but what Jesus did for you at the cross. You go back with us those 2,000 years. It was strangely dark. A thunderstorm was blowing in from the mountains and the clouds hid the sun. Women took their children by the hand and hurried back to the city. People looked up at the sky and wondered. They stood blinking at flashes of lightning that looked like daggers of fire. The eyes, the fingers, the faces, the noise, everything focused on that center cross. From the crowd, words dipped in venom were hurled at him from snarling lips. They said things like, Hey, Jesus, if you really are the Son of God then get down off that cross. Hey, carpenter, you said you could build a temple in three days. Well, you have nails in your hands and plenty of wood behind your back, so go on, build us something. Can't you save yourself? Oh, he could have saved himself, but then he couldn't have saved anyone else. He was a king who failed in the eyes of the world in order to succeed in the eyes of God. Those were our sins he suffered for, and he has with his own blood written across all the ledgers of heaven, 
that one word, forgiven. Father, when we um, try to imagine in our mind's eye what it was like for you to give your only begotten son, I, I can't fathom giving any of my children. Lord Jesus, I, I know there's no way we can comprehend the physical pain that you took, but, but even beyond that, that you who knew no sin became sin. Every lie that's been told in this room, every act of immorality, every theft, every angry word, that, that you in that one cup had poured on you the sin of the world. I, no, no way we can ever comprehend that because we don't know what it's like to be sinless. But you became sin. And, and God, I, I um, in moments like this, I'm, I'm overwhelmed with the sacrifice that you made. And Lord Jesus, the, the, the price that you paid, I, I'm, I am awed by that. But the problem is I, I don't live in that awe. I, I, I can walk out and in the middle of the day tomorrow and for, forget and I, I ask that tonight in my own life and in every life here, God, we, we don't want to live in, in gloom, but we want to live in the reality that, that, that we have been bought with a price. And it was, not a, it, it was not a cheap price. And that we are to glorify you with our, our life because the, the price that was paid for us, the gift that was given of your son, help us to see that more clearly tonight and to to carry that with us, to really be able to be in awe of the cross. We'll give you praise. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. You can return to your seats. As you do, take your prayer cards and pass them to the aisle. Some of the team will collect them as they, as they slip out. Take your notebook there and turn to page 18. I want to I share with you in these remaining moments here. This, this is probably my, my least favorite thing to talk about because sin is not a fun thing to talk about. I mean, it's just, it's not, it's not very funny. Uh, it's, it's not very fun. And in fact, I, I know churches, huge mega churches in our country that have just decided not to talk about sin. Because people don't want to hear that. People don't want to talk about sin anymore. And so if you want to build a big crowd, then it's a lot easier just to not, not go there. And, and as a culture, we, we don't want to define even sin as a culture. And as a church, it's going to be less and less popular to stand where God stands. But if we don't, if we cave to the culture, if we give in to the even religious crowd, then we're going to be just like them. I want you to remember this truth about sin. God is serious about sin, but he is just as serious about forgiveness as he is about sin. So, so when you think about the seriousness in which God takes sin, you need to, but don't forget that the seriousness of sin also precludes the seriousness of forgiveness. That's why Christ went to the cross. It was not about condemnation. It's so there could be, therefore, now no condemnation. And the cross is a place of hope and of joy if we'll come and agree with God at the cross. 
I, I don't see it as something we all deal with. Well, I, this lady said, there, here's, here's a prayer. It's a morning prayer. So far today, Lord, I haven't gossiped. I haven't lost my temper. have been grumpy, greedy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. I'm really glad about that. But in a few minutes, God, I'm going to get out of bed. And from then on, I'm going to a lot more help. Yeah, maybe if we could just lay in bed all day, you know, we wouldn't have to, have to deal with this. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. And, and this is just kind of a, a, a foundation. I, I want to give you just kind of a, a primer on, on sin. If we were a, a, taking a, a class on, on uh, soteriology, we talk about sa- salvation, and we're taking a class this evening for a few moments on, on the doctrine of sin. And, and here's a, a premise for this. It says in 1 Peter 1, verse 13, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How many of you cried out for grace today? Let me see your hand right up in the air. I know Mike did. Anybody else cry out for grace today? I hope you did. We all needed to. hope you got up and reminded yourself that, that you are weak and he is strong and that you need God. Verse 14, as obedient children. By the way, I don't see a whole lot of those in our culture. We'll talk about that on Saturday. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance. Don't go back and do the things you used to do and you didn't know any better. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in most of your behavior. Is that what your Bible says? What does yours say? Oh, mine does too. I underline that. In all your behavior. Because it's written, you shall be Holy. Now, in my Bible, where it says you, above that, I've put my name. I'd encourage you to do the same thing. Don't put my name. But put, uh, put your name, unless it's Steve, put your name there. Because we sometimes look at these words and say, well, that, that was written to, you know, first century Christians. No, this is written to us. Steve shall be holy. John shall be holy. Sue shall be holy. Put your name there. God has called us to be holy. You shall be holy because I am holy. Holiness is not popular in our culture, but, but it should be in this culture. Now, let's define sin, just to make sure we're on the same page. According to 1 John 3, 4, sin is a transgression of the law. Here, here's the, the simplest definition I can give. Sin is breaking the law of God in thought, word, or deed. That's what sin is, breaking the law of God in thought, word, or deed. We, we talk about the importance of fearing the Lord. And, and the, the, the thing about fearing the Lord is not to be afraid of Him. It's not like God is sitting there waiting to beat you over the knuckles if you stick your hand in the wrong place. Here's a definition. Just, you don't need to write it down. But just look at it. The fear of the Lord is this. It's the continual awareness that I am in the presence of a holy, just, almighty God, and every thought, every word, every deed is open before Him and being judged by Him. Just living in the awareness that God is there. That God, and, and, and the problem is this. I heard about a, a gang in Chicago years ago, and uh, they, they, it, was, it was before the days of, of the tight security that we've gone to in, in, in these days, so it was a few years ago. They went to a large downtown department store in Chicago, and they waited till like a half hour before closing time. And they hid themselves in restrooms and closets and under places and whatever. They had hiding places, and they waited for the store to close. And the store closed, and everyone left, and, and uh, they locked the doors, and everybody, everybody left. And then they came out, and for the next few hours, they didn't steal anything. They just rearranged price tags 
took the price tag off one item, put on this, and, and they switched price tags all over the store. And then they waited, went back to sleep, and waited for the store to open the next morning. Well, the next morning, the managers came down, opened the doors, and there was ladies there waiting for the early morning bargains. And when they came in, chaos erupted. Televisions were two for a dollar. A pair of socks, 800 bucks. Diamond rings were, you know, 89 cents, and, 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 and sheets were $10,000. I mean, everything was all switched around. And I think what happens is in our life, there's this, there's this bargain table of life, and, and Satan says here, you can involve yourself in this. God's not really too concerned about this. The price tag isn't too bad. But he has switched the price tags. And, and we are picking things up and pulling things into our life. And, and before you do, you better look and see what the real cost of that is. That, that God is watching, that God does see. And, and living in the fear of God is the awareness that God is not some old man in a rocking chair up in heaven, not concerned about what's going on here, but he sees every thought, every word, and every deed. Now, now let's talk about, about how sin affects us. This is just a primer on sin. Sin degrades, it debases, and it destroys. I don't have time to walk through all these, but you, can, you know the stories of Samson and, and what happened in his life, how, how Esau, we talked about that in Hebrews, how Joshua, even in the scenario that he faced in relationship to the battle of Jericho, the greatest problem facing man today is sin. Because of sin, there's pain and, and worry and war and sickness and fighting and death and anxiety and famine and weeds and tears and pollution and discord and every other evil thing. Sin starts from conception. It's the monarch of man, the lord of the soul, and no one escapes. Sin is the root of every broken marriage, every shattered friendship, every disagreement, every argument, every pain, every tear. Joshua 7.13 is called the accursed thing. It's compared in Scripture to the venom of snakes and the stench of death. What does sin affect? It affects, as we talked about Sunday morning, revival. We define revival as the peace, the power, and the presence of God, and sin destroys those things. David lost his peace when he sinned. Samson lost his power, and Jonah went down, it says, from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. He went down into the ship. He went down in the hole of the ship. He went down in the water. He went down in the ocean. He went down in the fish, he went, and the fish took him to the bottom of the ocean. He was as far away as you could go. And running from God always leads you in a downward progression, and Jonah left the presence of the Lord. We, we've left our first love. There is such an absence of the presence of God in most churches that people can live in sin and feel comfortable with it. So in a church in Oklahoma some time ago, the youth pastor, music pastor rather, came and, and he'd been involved with a, a couple women in the church in, in adulterous affairs. And, and he came and said, I really want to take care of this. And Debbie and I met with he and his wife and he sit before the church, and, and he sought forgiveness, and, and, and uh, they had a restoration process for him. But, but some couple months later, I got a letter from one of the ladies in the church. And it was just a ripping me up one side and down the other. She said, you, you ruined our church. So I, I ruined the church because I, I'd counseled him to, to deal with his sin. It was okay for him to be living in his sin, but when it got exposed, of course, the town found out, and her friends found out, and it made her look bad. We don't mind sin as long as nobody knows about it. And, and we have become comfortable living in those situations. We're in a church. I don't even know the name of the church, but I, I know the address. It was on the corner of 14th and Compromise. 
Not a great place to build a church, I want to tell you. And, and, and while we were there, it turned out there was a wife-swapping ring going on in the church choir. People were coming Sunday after Sunday singing praise to God by living in horrendous immorality. And we have become so deadened to the, to the Spirit of God that we can live in sin and not even, and you can, listen, you cannot ultimately play the game of sin and get away with it. We think we can. Where does sin affect? It affects us in public. Be sure your sin will find you out. I read about a couple guys who worked for the Boeing Company in Seattle area, building some of these huge, huge planes, and, and uh, they, were, they were on a break one day, and they were, they were just enamored by... In the, in the door of these huge jumbo jets are inflatable rafts. And, and they have made them so compact and, and, and so efficient, they fit inside the door of the, of the plane. And, and so when, when the plane needs to make an emergency water landing, it, it opens up into a, a huge life raft. And one of them said, wouldn't it be great to take one of those, hike up into the mountains, and float down the river? So they figured out a way to steal one of these rafts. And they smuggled it out of the plant. They all arranged to have the same weekend off. They hiked up in the mountains. One of them carried it on his back. And, and they camped out. Next morning, they broke camp, pulled this little lever, and that raft just inflated into this beautiful raft. They jumped in. They were floating down the river. They hadn't been floating down for more than about 20 minutes until a U.S. Coast Guard helicopter came coming through the canyon. They didn't realize when you pull that lever, it sends out a homing device to the Coast Guard. They, are. they don't work for Boeing anymore. And, and <laughs> when I read that, I thought, that's what sin does. It sends out this homing. You, you think that you can be the exception to God's rule? That you can sin and get away with it and God's not going to deal with it? If God was let one sin go and dealt with, the very stars of heaven would fall from their sockets because God's nature demands that sin be dealt with. And he has chosen to do that in the death of his son. He's given us a way of escape. He's given us a, an ability to come and confess and repent and change. But if you don't do that, it will find you out. Find you out in your face. You've seen somebody with a 120-year-old face on a 20-year-old body? You, you can just look at their face and, and tell the scars, the effect of sin, of their wrong choices, how it has affected them physically. Sin finds you out in private. Listen, nothing destroys your intimacy with God faster than moral impurity. And when David's sin, David's sin was on the balcony when he committed adultery. It started with his mind and his eyes. He acted it out in the bedroom. And he lost his, his relationship with God for that time. It finds you out personally. We could talk about Eli and what happened in his life and, and, and with his sons. Listen, what you do in secret, the Bible says, will one day be proclaimed upon the rooftops. Now, now listen, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one says, if you judge yourself rightly, you will not be judged. You can deal with it now. You don't have to wait till eternity to have it be judged. You can take care of it now. Who does it affect? Well, it affects us. We could talk about Moses and, and, and you know his story, how, how he ended up you know, striking the rock rather than speaking to the rock. It, it, it affects our family. Can you imagine Adam and Eve on the day of the first death? I mean, here was Adam and Eve. They didn't understand what death was. And, and God said, if, if you touch, if you eat from this tree, the day you eat of it, you're going to bring death into the world. They ate that fruit, and you know the story, and they had these children, Cain and Abel, and they got in a fight, and, and, and Cain killed his brother. 
Can you imagine this scene? That They didn't know what death looked like. They, were, they had been told you're going to bring death in, but imagine the scene on the day of the first murder. We, we don't have it in, 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 in specific detail, but, but I can imagine here's Adam and Eve, and, 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 and they call their children it's time to eat. I, I can imagine Adam saying, Cain, Abel, come in, it's time to eat. Cain comes in. Adam says, where's your brother? I don't know. Eve says, it's getting cold. We need to eat. So they start eating. And, and, and I, I, we don't read this in Scripture, but parents care about their kids. And, and when your son doesn't come home, you look for him. And, and I can imagine the scene where Adam and Eve, the, 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 as parents, they're saying this is not like Abel. He, he's normally here, and, and something's wrong. There's, there's been a problem. And, and they start searching from, from field to field and pasture to pasture. I can imagine Adam seeing his wife and, and, and saying to his wife, honey, I, I see something, and, and, and running ahead. And the closer he gets, he sees the, the dead body of his son laying there in a pool of blood. And I can imagine Adam picking up the limp body of his dead son and looking up into heaven and saying, Oh, God, I never thought it'd be this bad. But there's a price tag on sin. Don't be deceived. Galatians 6, 7 says, don't be deceived. God will not be mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. I I, I can't imagine Achan. Here's Achan. He he goes into uh, this this battle, and and, and Joshua says, don't take anything for yourself. The first battle, all the spoil is going to go to the Lord's treasury. And so so, so here he is. He's in Joshua. The the fire is coming. The walls are down, and he sees all this stuff. It's going to be burned up anyway. No one's going to miss this. I know, I know we were told not to do this, but but no one's going to know. No one's going to care. And he grabs a few things and buries them under his tent. They go down to the next battle, a little town of Ai. They don't even talk to God about it. It's just, it's nothing compared to Jericho. Jericho. So they're going to go down there. They'll knock it off before dinner time and and be back before sundown. They get down to Ai, and the men of Ai come out and defeat Israel. 38 men are killed. They run back, tails tucked between their legs. Joshua falls on his face, says, oh, God, we're going to be the laughing stock of the world. What's happening here? And God says to Joshua, get up off your face. There's sin in the camp. There's a time not to pray. The time not to pray is when sin has been exposed and not being dealt with. And they line all the tribes up in a line. The 12 tribes, they cast lots. It comes to one tribe. They line the heads of the household up. Cast lots. comes to one household. Line all the men in that household up. And they cast lots. And it comes to Achan. And the lot falls on him. And here's what Joshua says to Achan. Glorify God in what you have done. Tell me how what you have done has brought glory to God. As you look back at your life this week, the decisions you've made, the the money you've spent, the place you've gone, and God is saying to you, tell me how what you're doing, how you're living, how is that bringing glory to God? You know the story. He had no answer. God said, take him outside the camp and bury him in a pile of stones. Can you imagine? that they take him outside. Here's everything he's worked for all of his life. I don't know if it was the stolen items too, but all of his material things. And and they start throwing rocks and and everything he's lived for, everything he's worked for, smashed in front of him. The rocks start pelting his children. His wife falls limp in his arms. I can imagine him looking up in heaven and saying, oh God, I never thought it'd be this bad. But there is a price tag on sin. God will not be mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. 
And sin affects us. It affects our friends. It affects the people around us. It affects even our God because God had to give his only begotten son to die in our place. When does it affect us? It affects our past. I don't have time to walk through all this, but it affects our present. It affects even our future. Do you know there's going to be tears in heaven? No, no, no. The Bible says, Steve, that God's going to wipe away all tears. That's right. Why is he wiping them away? If there's no tears, they would have to wipe them away. Why are there tears in heaven? Is it possible that if God didn't wipe away our tears, that some of us would cry for all eternity? And as we look at all the missed opportunities that we have had on this earth and, and we didn't deal with things, now listen, you can deal with it now. That's why God has given us 1 John 1, 9. Why does sin affect us so seriously? Because we read it here in 1 Peter and the same thing in Isaiah 6, because God is holy, holy, holy. The holiness of God is the only attribute of God mentioned three times in succession. And the angels right now, the cherubim, are flying around the throne of the room of God right now, and they're not crying out, God is love, love, love. God is mercy, mercy, mercy. He is a God of love. He is a God of mercy. But he puts a priority, a premium, on the character of his holiness. And they're crying out day and night, God is holy, holy, holy. And, and until we are awed by that, until we sense the reality and the, the need to, to live in the joy of the cross, but in the seriousness of the cross, then we're just going to float through life doing our own thing. Now, now, how can the effect of sin be reversed? God has given us away. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive. And, and then the, the word that our culture does not like, to repent to turn from those things, to say, God, where, where I've been living a, a, a life of anger, where, I, where I've been squeezed and it's not Jesus coming out, where, where I've not had the, the accent in my life, I've lost your power, where, where I've not been praying with my wife, where, where I've not been obeying my, my parents, where, where I've not been the person that I know to be. I, I, I know truth, I teach truth, but I'm not living that truth. I'm not obeying that truth. I repent and I change. I don't want to be a cactus like Debbie talked about two ladies today. And I repent of that, and I replace it with the right thing. You put off the old, and you put on the new. And that process of confession and repentance and replacing should go on and on day by day in our life. Bill Bright called it spiritual breathing. He said it's like physically you exhale carbon monoxide, no, dioxide, unless you're a car, okay? And, and you inhale oxygen, all right? Seeing if you're awake. Uh, you inhale oxygen. And, and so the same thing, spiritual breathing, you, you exhale your sin and you inhale God's forgiveness. And, and that process of, of exhaling your sin, that, that's just confession. God, God you're right. I've, I've been selfish. I've been stubborn, whatever God says. And, and I inhale God's control. But, but it's got to be a willingness in our heart to change, to come to repentance, a change in my mind about my sin that changes my direction. Now, I said last night, if you had come and walked through this exercise, you could go to bed nothing between your soul and your Savior. Turn the back of your book. There's a section called Put Off, Put On. I'm not sure what page it's on. It's toward the back someplace there. And I, I want to I walk through this, and, and here, again, I want you to remember this. God is just as serious about forgiveness as he is about sin. 
God did not design guilt to lead us to despair. He designed guilt to lead us to repentance. And when we confess, he remembers our sin against us no more. You know, you know that God, you say, well, God forgets our sin. No, God doesn't forget our sin. It'd be impossible for us to know something God doesn't know. The Bible says this, he remembers it against us no more. He doesn't pull it out of the closet and say, remember what you did here? He doesn't do that. He doesn't use it against us. He chooses to remember it no more. That's incredible. If we will deal with it his way, if we'll be honest. I'm going to walk through some of these with you. I want to ask you to do this. I want you to put a check mark out of the side of each one of these you've been guilty of committing in the last 12 months. Now, don't start yet. If you get ahead of me, you have to check impatience when we get there, okay? So just hang on for a minute. And, and if you've already confessed it, then you can circle it. Now, here's what this is going to do. This will help you when you go to bed tonight. You can say, I've taken care of, there's nothing between me and God. It'll also help you to be a little bit more sensitive to the things that we call little things that we have let creep into our life. So let's walk through this. Number one, the last 12 months have you been guilty of a lack of love. Lack of love towards your husband, your wife, your parents, your kids, neighbors, the lost. Is there anyone you haven't loved in the last 12 months the way God wanted you to love them? If so, then put a check mark by number one. Number two is bitterness. Bitterness comes from being hurt. We've all faced potentially hurtful situations. People cutting us off, people saying things. How do, how do I know if I'm over my bitterness or not? If when you think of what that person says, what that person did, if your first response is not to thank God for them, you've not dealt with it God's way. You've been bitter in the last 12 months, unforgiving spirit. I forgive everybody who asks me. No, it's forgiving them before they ask. That guy who cut you off. I had a lady come, and she'd already chosen not to forgive her husband. He hadn't done anything wrong yet. She said this. She said, if my husband ever committed adultery against me, he would find his bags packed on the front doorstep. He hadn't done it yet. She was already choosing ahead of time not to forgive. Number four, selfishness. You've been selfish in the last 12 months? Living for your food, your job, your time? Selfishness. Selfishness is, is basically idolatry. It's bowing down to the idol of me. Number five, pride. If you don't think that's your problem, look who's writing the spelling. P-R-I-D-E. We have eye trouble. I want this, and I want it my way. And, and, and by the way, some people say, I'm not proud. I'm just real shy. Don't tell people you're shy. Shyness is just the epitome of pride. A shy person is a proud person. You say, well, I, don't, I, I just go to a party. I just kind of stand by the wall. I don't say anything. Why? Because you're afraid you're going to say something stupid or silly or whatever. And, and, and if, you're, if you're a shy person, somebody says, you know, will you do this? I, I can't. I'm too shy. Just say, I'm too proud. I can't do it because that would be a better description. Pride. Now, let me give you a checkup. I've been doing this for a long time. I've never met an adult who didn't have to check all five of the first five. Are, are you being honest? Number six, boasting, conceit. Number seven, stubbornness. <laughs> I'm not going to check this in list. All right? You start right there, number seven, you're stubborn. If the person next to you hasn't checked anything yet, reach over and put a star by number seven for him right now. <laughs> Nobody's going to tell me to do this. You know what stubbornness is? Stubbornness, it says in 1 Samuel, is iniquity and idolatry. It's bowing down to the altar of me. My way is better than your way. Stubbornness. Many of us have to check that one. Disrespect for authority. You say, park there, brother. Talk to those teenagers. Tell those teenagers they should respect their authorities. 
Yeah, they should. But where are they learning respect? Last time you got pulled over by that police officer and he walked away, what'd you, you roll up a window, what'd you say? Yeah, that lousy cop, why doesn't he leave us honest and sense alone, go catch some guilty criminals? Disrespect for authority. We live in a culture where we have politicians that are anything but upright. And, and, but when we criticize and, and, and malign people that, that God has placed in authority, it just creates a pattern for others to watch and say, I guess that's how I'm supposed to treat my authorities. This governmental authorities, church authorities. You go home from church on Sunday, have roast preacher for lunch. I don't like the way Dan's doing this. I don't like the way the elders are doing this. Disrespect for authority. Go to them. Don't go to 10 other people. Number nine, rebellion. I used to pass that one. I thought, I'm a lot of things, but I'm not a rebel. I grew up in Southern California. went to college in Southern California. And, and um, my idea of a rebel, my mental image of a rebel is a guy with his long hair, with his Hells Angels jacket, and his Harley Davidson cruising down Sunset Strip. That's my mental image of a rebel. Then God gave me this definition. Somebody said this, rebellion is reserving the right to make the final decisions about your life. Man, when I heard that, I thought, I'm a rebel. There's a lot of times I make final decisions about my life. I don't talk to God about it. Rebellion is reserving the right to make the final decisions about your life, not talking to God, the list you made about your finances, the list about your career, the list about what to do with your life. Do you talk to God about those things? You just make decisions. Rebellion. Number 10, disobedience. If you don't check that one, make sure you check lying when we come to that one. Because <laughs> no one here can say I've obeyed every command in the Word of God the last 12 months. Number 11, impatience. That's accepting everything is coming from God for your good. Traffic lights and health problems and store lines and, and whatever it is. Are, are you patient or are you impatient? Ungratefulness. The attitude, everybody better serve me and take care of me. And if I don't get enough here, enough of that, and enough pat on the back, covetousness, wishing you had what other people had and wishing they didn't have it. That's how sick we are. Complaining. You say, man, Steve, we put it on this list. Everybody complains about, you know, the cold weather or the hot weather or the, the loud music or taxes. Everybody complains a little bit, don't they? It was the little, quote-unquote, little sin of murmuring and complaining that so angered the God of heaven, he sent an entire nation in the wilderness, had them wander for 40 years, and kill off the entire adult population. Why? Because they murmured and complained against God's man. God takes sin seriously, do you? Jealousy, strife, retaliation, anger, easily irritated, hatred, gossip, critical spirit, lying, laziness, hypocrisy, idolatry. I'm, I, don't, I don't have any idols in my house, really. What, what have you bowed down to? What, what is more important in your life than God? Look at the way you spend your time, your money. Look at where you go through that. What, what, what is your idol? I'm not going to go through the rest of these. You take some and do that. But look at the, look at the last one, 50, 54, murder. You say, that last one I don't have to check. Depends on your definition. You know what murder is? Murder is wishing someone out of existence. And the fact is most of us have to check murder. Because there's people who say, I wish I'd ever see them again. I wish they were gone. 
Had a man come to me and say, Steve, there's a man in my community who's wronged my wife. I have murdered him in my mind over and over again. I've chosen the place, the gun, the way. I've murdered him in my mind. Had a man come to me and say, Steve, I've murdered my own mother. She's, she's, she has, she's senile and she's in a, a home. And, and I just said, God, I wish she was gone. I've, I've murdered my own mother out of selfishness in my own heart. Who have you wished out of existence? Now, now here's the deal. If you will go home tonight and walk through this exercise and, 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 and take each one and say, God, this is me. I agree with you. I, I, I repent of this. The other side of this sheet has the things you're to add. So you put off the wrong. You agree with God and you repent and you say, God, I want to begin to stop being lack of love. I want to be loving. I, I want to stop being bitter. I'm going to put on tender hardness and forgiveness. And you put off the one, you put on the other, and, and you can go to bed nothing between your soul and your Savior. But you've got to be honest enough to say, God, this is me. I'm, I'm not going to blame all the other people that are worse off than me that I think they are. God, this is me, and I agree with you. And until we come to that brokenness, we'll never know freedom. But once we come there, he is willing and just to forgive. And he is serious about forgiveness, so serious he put his son on the cross. But you've got to take it seriously. I want to close the service tonight by letting you watch a little clip. You may have seen it before. It's just every time I see it, I'm convicted. It's a, a few statements by a preacher who died a few years ago, David Wilkerson. You remember him from the cross and the switchblade at a church in Times Square? And tonight, I tell you, you've been such a fellowshipping church. I've been so, after services, you're talking and fellowshipping, and that is great. And every other night, we're going to do that. But tonight, when we get through, I want to ask you to leave and not talk to anybody. Because our tendency will be walk out and say, well, I had to check half of these. How about you? Ha, ha, ha. And you'll run past what God is saying to you. I want to encourage you to take this list. Maybe if you have children, go as quietly as you can. It's, it's not going to be total quiet there, but as much as you can, get your children, go home, maybe put them in bed, and take some time before you bed and, before you go to bed and, and walk through this. So after you see this little clip, there'll be no formal dismissal. But after you see this, take a few moments and maybe walk through the first 10 before you even leave the auditorium. He'll, he'll invite you to come to the altar. You may want to come to the altar and talk to God. You may want to get on your knees. You do what God tells you to do. And when God gives you freedom to slip out, then you can slip out, and we'll see you Saturday morning at 9. You watch this. Respond as God tells you, and, quit, and then slip out silently. And I look at the whole religious scene today, and all I see are the inventions and ministries of man and flesh. It's mostly powerless. It has no impact on the world. And I see more of the world coming into the church and impacting the church rather than the church impacting the world. I see the music taking over the house of God. I see entertainment taking over the house of God. An obsession with entertainment in God's house, a hatred of correction and a hatred of reproof. Nobody wants to hear it anymore. Whatever happened to anguish in the house of God? Whatever happened to anguish in the ministry? It's a word you don't hear in this pampered age. You don't hear it. Anguish means extreme pain and distress. The emotion so stirred 
that it becomes painful, acute, deeply felt inner pain because of conditions about you, in you or around you. Anguish, deep pain, the sorrow, the agony of God's heart. We've held on to our religious rhetoric and our revival talk, but we've become so passive. All true passion is born out of anguish. All true passion for Christ comes out of a baptism of anguish. You search the scripture and you'll find that when God determined to recover a ruined situation, he would share his own anguish for what God saw happening to his church and to his people. And he would find a praying man and he would take that man and literally baptize him in anguish. You find it in the book of Nehemiah. Jerusalem is in ruins. How is God going to deal with this? How is God going to restore the ruin? Now folks, look at me. Nehemiah was not a preacher. He was a career man. But this was a praying man. And God found a man who would not just have a flash of emotion, not just some great sudden burst of concern and then let it die. He said, no, I broke down and I wept and I mourned and I fasted. And then I began to pray night and day. Why didn't these other men, why didn't they have an answer? Why didn't God use them in restoration? Why didn't they have a word? Because there was no sign of anguish. No weeping. Not a word of prayer. It's all ruin. Does it matter to you today? Does it matter to you at all? That God's spiritual Jerusalem, the church, is now married to the world? That there's such a coldness sweeping the land? Closer than that, does it matter about the Jerusalem that's in our own hearts? The sign of ruin that's slowly draining spiritual power and passion, blind to lukewarmness, blind to the mixture that's creeping in. That's all the devil wants to do is get the fight out of you and kill it. So you won't labor in prayer anymore. You won't weep before God anymore. You can sit and watch television and your family go to hell. Let me ask you, has what I just said convicted you at all? There's a great difference between anguish and concern. Concern is something that you, the biggest interest you. You take an interest in a project or a cause or a concern or a need. And I want to tell you something I've learned over all my years, 50 years of preaching. If it is not born in anguish, if it has not been born by the Holy Spirit, where when you saw and heard of the ruin that drove you to your knees, took you down into a baptism of anguish where you began to pray and seek God, I know now, oh my God, do I know it. Until I'm in agony. Until I have been anguished over it. And all our projects, all our ministries, everything we do. Where are the Sunday school teachers that weep over kids they know 
I'm not hearing and they're going to hell. You see, a true prayer life begins at the place of anguish. You see, if you, you set your heart to pray, God's going to come and start sharing your heart, His heart with you. Your heart begins to cry out, Oh God, your name is being blasphemed. The Holy Spirit's being mocked. The enemy is out trying to destroy the testimony of the Lord's faithfulness and something has to be done. There's going to be no renewal, no revival, no awakening until we're willing to let him once again break us. Folks, it's getting late and it's getting serious. Please don't tell me. Don't tell me you're concerned when you're spending hours in front of internet or television. Come on. Lord, there's some need to get this altar and confess. I am not what I was. I am not where I'm supposed to be. God, I don't have your heart or your burden. I've been, I wanted it easy. Didn't want to be happy. But Lord, true joy comes. True joy comes out of anguish. There's nothing of the flesh will give you joy. I don't care how much money. I don't care what kind of new house there is absolutely nothing physical could give you joy it's only what is accomplished by the Holy Spirit when you obey him and take on his heart build the walls around your family build the walls around your own heart make you strong and impregnable against the enemy God that's what we desire